Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. At the end of this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And let the church say, Our reading for today is taken from Ruth chapter 2, from verse 1 to 19. Ruth chapter 2, from verse 1 to 19. I read, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eye I I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, She is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, Listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Let her gather among the sheaves and do not reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she gathered, she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth said to her mother-in-law, 
about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. This is the word of the Lord. That so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, I'll never forsake. Hearing those great words of comfort and promise to us this morning, that regardless of what you're experiencing, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what life has thrown your way, regardless of what your trajectory of life looks like, Jesus will not forsake you. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for that promise. Lord, we read in your word, we see in your word even that when life gets hard, you're not a God who sort of talks to us from a distance. You're a God who is with us in the mess. You're a God who is with us where the shoe pinches. You're a God who is with us in the daily grind and mess of our lives. So Lord, now we turn our eyes and attention to you. We haven't come to hear any clever words. We haven't come to hear any deep insights. We have come to just see you. A lot sometimes you speak to us in earthquakes and with really loud voices and with a great occurrence like you did to the Israelites at the Red Sea. But sometimes, Lord, you also speak to us, Lord, in a still, small voice like you did to Elijah. Lord, whichever one you are pleased to do this morning, all we want is for us to hear from you. So, Lord, we ask that you speak to us this morning. Let us be captivated by your beauty, by your glory, Lord, by your nearness, by your awesomeness, by the fact that you are for us and we are yours. Anoint my lips this morning. Anoint our ears and help our feet to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Good morning, everyone. You're welcome to City Church. Um, This is how we used to start back in the day. You're welcome to City Church, um, my gospel-centered urban church. And we are, yeah, the old timers know what I'm talking about. But we're happy to have you this morning. Particularly if you've been away for a while, or if you are here with the, um, the families who dedicated the child, we're happy to have you. My name is Emmanuel. And I'm one of six people who have the awesome privilege of serving this church on the leadership team. And so we'll be more than happy if you're just joining us here, you have a question or you would like to um, have prayers afterwards, or you just want to share something, please feel free to speak to myself, to Francis, Samo, Uncle Wai, or Dami at the end of the service. We'll be more than happy to have a word or a chat with you. So what we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Ruth, and we've called it Bittersweet. And basically what we've been experiencing in the book of Ruth is how the ordinariness of our lives becomes the setup for us to experience the extraordinariness of God. The ordinariness of our lives becomes the setup for us to experience the extraordinariness of God. And so we're three weeks in and we're doing this all the way to Christmas time. So make sure you stick around. If you have missed some sermons, um, you haven't missed too much. Just go back and listen to the last two. So as I was preparing for this sermon, um, I thought it might be helpful to do a kind of exercise. And so I want us to do this together. What if you could set a soundtrack to all the sermons that we've heard so far? 
What songs will you choose? If there was a song, if there was a song that could sort of accompany each sermon that we heard so far, what song would you choose? So, <laughs> so for the first one, if you were here, we um, Pastor Femi talked to us from Ruth chapter one, verses one to thirteen, uh, about how to think about migration, how to think about migration. What we saw there was that Ruth, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi, had eloped, basically jackpot with her husband. They had gone to the abroad. Right, and they had settled there for a while, and things didn't quite turn out well for them the way they ex- expected. And so, if you are going to sort of set a soundtrack to that sermon, what would you pick? I don't know about you, but I'll pick Timmy Dakolo's "Wish Me Well." Right, the song starts with his very raspy voice, and he begins there by saying, "I've packed my bags. I'm leaving town. I've bought a one-way ticket. I ain't coming back." It's goodbye friends and goodbye folks. I'm heading for the city and that's my home. And then he crosses, wish me well, wish me well. We don't quite know if he succeeds or not, but he's telling us to wish him well. All right, and what we saw in that sermon was that actually to think about migrating, to think about um, leaving our country, leaving wherever it is that we are placed, it, it has to be more than just economic thinking. It has to be more than just economic considerations. We have to think a lot more robustly about what it means to actually migrate or live where God has placed us. But then last week, Pastor Femi talked to us from the second half of chapter one, and there we saw how now Naomi has experienced the madness of life, and she wants to leave the place where she is in, in Moab. And so she's moving out of Moab, and she's saying, oh, her two daughters-in-law shouldn't follow her, Opa and Ruth. But Ruth says, I'm going to go with you all the way to the end. I'm going to be committed to you. And Pastor Femi was telling us about how we have to be this kind of family where there's so much dedication and connection amongst us that we are saying, basically, I'm, I'm not just going to go with you for a little while. I'm going to go with you all the way. I'm staying with you through the hardness and madness of life. If you're going to pick a song, what song would you choose? There's a song that came out about a month ago um, that I have watched the video a couple of times now, and I really like the song. It's by Johnny Drew, and it says, How are you, my friend? How are you, my friend? How do you do, my friend? I know sometimes be like, say, nobody send you that one alive, I do for you. It's a very beautiful song, and I think it captures that emotion that we have to be the kind of people who have to go all the way with one another. Not just when it's convenient, right? Not just when it's easy. Not just when things are going well. When things are going hard, we are going all the way because we belong to Christ. He has joined us to himself, and because he has been joined, we have been joined to him, we have been joined to one another. And so we come to today's sermon. And maybe you already have seen the topic of the sermon, right? We're talking about work. If there was a song that you could set to work, what song would it be? I don't know. There's a song that came to mind. It came to mind because I asked Tommy and Tommy suggested the song. So if if it doesn't work, blame Tommy. But it's the adulthood anthem. 
In fact, the way the song starts, I think it's very, the song starts with, ah! That's the way the song starts. It starts with, ah! And it goes, adulthood now. You got to hustle, make a living, two, four, seven. Nobody go ask if you don't chop. Nobody go send you free money. If you don't get, now you shall be adulthood na scam. Of course, she's not talking about work. She's talking about all the responsibilities that we have in our adult lives. And I think in many ways, that's the sentiment that we have when we, come, when we think about work. Work is a scam. Work is hard. Work is painful. Work is frustrating. How many of us have ever thought or said any of these words? <laughs> we are here, things like, we are here because of Adam and Eve. Right? Like, if Adam and Eve didn't eat that apple, even though it wasn't an apple, but if they didn't eat that apple, we wouldn't have, we won't be here. Or maybe you said something like, I want to work hard now so that I can retire early. Or maybe you said even this one, monkey, they walk, baboon, they chop. You see, all of those sort of slogans or those ways of thinking is how we sort of say, this thing is hard. This thing is messed up. This thing is difficult. This thing isn't what it promises or it holds out to be. And I really don't want to have anything to do with it. You see, we see it as sort of a necessary evil. You see, when we say we won't be here because of Adam and Eve, we have in mind that actually work is the result of the fall, it's the result of disobedience. And if not for Adam and Eve, that we actually will be in the garden right now, sipping juice and eating apples and strolling by the streams. When we say, I want to work hard now so that I can retire early, we are saying that work is this necessary evil and the ideal state of life is one where there's no work. You have all the money. I can just wake up at nine and sleep at whatever time it is. When we say monkey, they work, baboon, they chop, what we are saying essentially is that there is so much frustration that happens at work. The relationship at work isn't, the, isn't what it promises to be. Our bosses make all the money and keep it. And then they just give us just a little to make sure that we keep coming back. You see, but if we think like that, actually, that's not the Bible's viewpoint about work. The Bible doesn't see work as this sort of necessary evil type of thing that we have to do just so, to be, so that we can survive. The Bible actually has a very grand view of work. Let me show you something, Genesis chapter 2. So if you know the story of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is sort of like Two accounts of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this very structured and orderly account of creation. In Genesis chapter 2, what we have is sort of like a poem where everything doesn't always go on chronologically, but we are given this whole picture to see how this thing actually comes about, how creation comes about. And so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 begins with this. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Okay, so he's introducing us into that. Now, let's read together, verse 5. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. Stop. Okay, so there's no plant at this time in the world. There's nothing on the earth. It's basically barren. And the question the passage wants us to ask is why? Why isn't there anything at this point in creation? Let's read on. It says, For the Lord God had not yet sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to walk the ground. Fantastic. 
The reason why there was nothing on the earth at the time was, guess what? There was nobody to do the work of tilling and cultivating the ground. The Bible is making us see that the earth wasn't fulfilling its potential because there was nobody to actually do the work of bringing out the potential. So it says, because of that in verse 6, God just had to do this sort of makeshift type of thing. Streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground so that the earth doesn't get hard. In other words, work was one of the things that, or is one of the ways in which you actually bring to fullness the potential of the earth. And the Bible continues on in Genesis chapter 2. It says, God then creates humans. And when we get to verse 15, it says, when God has created human beings, it says what? He put them in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Work was God's idea. When God says we should go into all the world and flourish and, sub, and subdue creation, God doesn't just have in mind us just doing our own things. One of the primary ways that God wants us to do that is actually by working. So guess what? Adam and Eve were not just strolling about in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were working. Adam and Eve were working hard. In fact, I imagine Adam and Eve have gone through the garden. They have been tilling and cultivating. They have been doing all the things they have been doing, and they come back exhausted, and they are both happy and, and cheering with each other, like, see what we did today. See what we harvested. See what we planted. Adam and Eve were working in the garden. God's idea of work is this platform that allows the, the potential in our world to actually come to pass. So I pray today that as we look into this passage that God gives us a grand vision of what our workplace can actually be as we look at his plans and purposes for our lives, whether as employees or as employers in Jesus' name. So I've titled the sermon, A Thriving Workplace is Possible. Let's say that together. Sorry, that's not the title of the sermon. <laughs> a flourishing workplace is possible. Let's say that again. Flourishing workplace is possible. And you see, often we don't think about workplace and flourish, right? We actually think about workplace like sort of like graveyard, right? Things die. You get. But actually, the Bible's plan is that God's plan is that our workplaces become these places of flourishing. If, if I can just extend that sort of meditation further, part of the reasons why. Adam and Eve were put in the garden of Eden, not in the, in the building of Eden. In the garden of Eden is the God is trying to pass across a metaphor to say our role as human beings, as workers, is that we are gardeners. What does a gardener do? He nurtures, he cultivates. God is saying that as human beings, whatever aspect of work that we are called to, whether we are working in the home as full-time moms, whether we are working as domestic helps, as maids, whether we are working as laborers, or you are somebody who is a, a, a white-collar worker, you have a really noble profession, quote-unquote, your work is noble, regardless of what it's paying you. So we come to Ruth chapter 2. What we've been seeing so far is that it's, so far in chapter 1, is the exchange between Ruth and Naomi. That's all we've seen so far. But in chapter 2, we're introduced to this person called Boaz. And what we'll be doing today is looking at the interaction between Ruth and Boaz as Boaz sort of representing the, the ideal employer, the ideal boss, and Ruth representing the ideal 
um, worker. And we will see how God actually intends for our workplaces, what, what, what God intends for our workplaces to look like. Now, I'm trying something crazy. Um, ideally, this should be like two sermons. But because I know you people are very strong, right? You endure, you like the word of God. I'm going to just go for it and see where God takes us, right? Anybody? Nah, I'm joking. But let's see. Let's see how we do. And so the first thing we see here for a flourishing workplace to exist is that it must be led by worthy superiors. It must be led by worthy superiors. And so we come to chapter 2, and as we begin reading, we see we're introduced to this man called Boaz. And one of the ways the passage actually describes Boaz is that he's a man of standing. He's a man of standing. And when he says they're a man of standing, what he's saying there in another translation is that he was a worthy man in the ESV. He was a worthy man. And the question is, when you say to somebody you are worthy of X, Y, Z, the person wants to ask, worthy of what? See, the Bible is drawing our attention to the character of Boaz and how that was so much different from the age and time in which he lived. If you've been following the story of Ruth, you see that the book of Ruth is set in the context of the days of the judges. And we're told about the days of the judges in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, that it was a time where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. People were alone to themselves. People didn't have character. People didn't care about things. People just sort of lived through life. That was the time in which Boaz lived. And here we find somebody who is very much in that culture, but is not steeped or shaped by that culture. Boaz is a worthy man. He's a contrast with the times in which he lived. Isn't it interesting that, friends, that one of the ways we actually excuse sin in our own lives, one of the ways we excuse immaturity in our own lives by saying, I'm a man of my time. But that wasn't Boaz. Boaz wasn't somebody who was shaped by the ethics and views of his own time. He was shaped by the ethics and views of God's word. How do we know that? I told that when Boaz gets to work in Ruth chapter 2, verse 4, when he's coming to work, he's coming from home, presumably, because he's coming from Bethlehem and, and his, his field, his farm is outside of town. When he gets there, he says these words to his workers. He says, the Lord be with you. And everybody responds, the Lord bless you. When last did your employer greet you and said, the Lord bless you? Boaz's workplace was so different that people were actually happy. Oga is our work. Can you imagine? Many of us are happy when Oga is not around. Boaz gets to work and everybody's like, he's around. The boss is around. God bless you, sir. Welcome. And there's nothing that should actually make us think that this was sort of like religious stuff. Because again, as, you, as we've been reading, as we've been hearing about the book of Ruth, like this was a time where people didn't actually care about God. And yet you find that Boaz is this person who comes to work and everybody is like, God bless you. Why? Boaz is somebody, as this verse is telling us, Boaz is somebody who is not just content for his religious life to be lived in a separate corner and his work life and every other life to be lived in another corner. Boaz was somebody who wanted everything to be integrated. Boaz was somebody who was saying, Sunday is not just for Sunday. Sunday is for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Sunday is going to affect how I treat my staff. Sunday is going to affect the kind of environment that I create at work. Sunday is going to affect how I speak to my staff. Sunday has to define everything about me. Why? Because I belong to God. 
And you see, thriving and flourishing workplaces will only be possible insofar as we become the kind of people that the Bible's viewpoint actually shapes how we see work, how we do work, how we lead in our workplaces. Boaz was somebody who wanted to create a type of environment where the rule and reign of God permitted through. In modern business climate, we call that culture. Boaz wanted the culture of his company, the culture of his environment to be so much shaped by God's values that it actually affected everything that he did. I like the way somebody called Peter Drucker defines it. Peter Drucker is, refined, is, is described as he was um, a management consultant of the past generation, but he's often thought of as the father of modern management practice. And one of the things Peter Drucker said he's famous for having said is that culture eats strategy for breakfast. I'm not talking about Bonaboy's breakfast here. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. What's he saying? He's saying basically that you can set all your plans in place. You can have all these five-year goals and all the things you sort of want to accomplish at work, but the way in which you do work, the environment in which those things are set is much more important than the goals you set. Because why? Even though you may have good goals, those good goals will be inhibit, inhibited or enabled to come to fruition by the kind of culture that is operative in your office, your workspace. So the question for you, friends, this morning, what kind of culture do you have at work? And you may be listening to this and I'm like, oh, well, but I'm not an employer. I'm not somebody who sort of, I don't have a team to lead. I don't have a team to manage. I'm just somebody working so hard. Guess what? Maybe you have a family. One of the things that has been recently helpful for me in terms of how I lead my own home is in terms of thinking as my family as a small business. If my family is a small business and I am the employer or the boss of this organization, how am I supposed to lead it? How am I supposed to rule, quote-unquote, in this home? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And what we see in Boaz is the kind of culture that Boaz creates is a culture of humility, a culture of hard work, a culture of security, a culture of generosity, and a culture of empowerment. A culture of humility, a culture of hard work, a culture of security, a culture of generosity, and a culture of empowerment. A culture of humility. We're told in verse 14 that Boaz has come to work and at lunchtime, okay? So maybe some of you don't even have lunchtime in your offices. Boaz and Boaz's workplace, they had a lunchtime. But this is what was extraordinary. Boaz said to Ruth, somebody who is down on the ladder, he says, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all over, she ate all she wanted and had some left over. Boaz didn't just sort of orchestrate lunchtime for his colleagues or for his workers. He sat down there with them. He sat down there with them. You see, oftentimes we have this idea of leadership as I'm the boss and everybody else is under. But actually, that's such a wrong and unbiblical way of thinking about leadership. Boaz, we find here, he's not saying everybody's under me. I go and eat in the AC lounge, and then everybody sort of go just go and eat wherever they find their space. No, Boaz says, let's eat together. Don't, don't raise up your hand. How many of us actually eat with our employers? How many of us actually eat with our team leads? 
And the point here is not that you should be having, the point is not merely about having lunch with your team leader or your boss. That's not the point. The point is that our leadership of our organization should be such that everybody looks at us and says, are you one of us? You should lead in such a way that it doesn't make sense for people looking outside in. Boaz sits down with the rest of the crew and he offers. In fact, he's the one serving the lunch. A culture of humility. And many of us are, I know why. As I was thinking about this, like, this doesn't make any sense, right? Many of us are afraid because we live in a country and a clan where people actually take those things for granted. Where if you open your door, everybody will sort of now be stepping on your head and stepping on your toe and you'll be sort of like a doormat. It's true. People abuse those things. But you see, we should never allow people's wrongdoing to become the excuse for our own wrongdoing. If you open up the door to someone and the person mistreats or the person takes um, advantage of that sort of gracious hand that you offered, it's proof that the person doesn't belong in your organization. It's not proof that you should stop doing what you are doing. What we find Boaz doing here, Boaz is offering a culture of humility. One of the most important books about leadership in any sort of sector that has been written in the last couple of years is a book by a guy called Jim Collins, Good to Great. Some of us have read it. If you haven't read it, please find a summary. There are summaries online. If you don't like reading big books or business books, there are summaries online and you can sort of get it in just about 10 minutes. It's a fantastic book. One of the things he talks about in the book, he's surveying different types of businesses that have made the leap from being good to great over a sustained period of time. And they've more than, they doubled the sort of the market share for their respective industries. One of the, the first thing the book opens with is that these kind of companies are led by what you call level five leaders. Level five leaders. Level one leaders are people who are very just competent sort of managers. And then level four people are people who are very effective. But level five people are people who are at the top. And he says this about level five leaders. They are people who bring transformation. They are not necessarily charismatic or big personalities. In fact, sometimes they may be quiet or shy or deliberate, but they have a combination of humility and professional will. They are modest and really like to talk about themselves or their achievements. They prefer to share the credit with others as opposed to other good company leaders who are self-obsessed and egalitarians. Level five leaders. People who say, no, no, yes, I'm at the top of this company, but being at the top of this company means how can I serve? You don't spend too much time on this. A culture of humility. It's a culture of hard work. If you read the entire text of chapter two, what you see is that there's a lot of work going on. A lot of work going on. And you're saying, oh, wow. Wow, Boaz has really implemented this, work, this sort of hard work culture. But the truth actually is that when you get to chapter 3, when Naomi is talking to Ruth and she's giving her advice to do something, the only time that Ruth can actually have a meeting with Boaz is when Boaz has finished work. Why? Because Boaz himself is not just going to work to see what people are doing. He's actually going to work to work. He's hard working. And many of us sometimes complain about what the people under us, their work ethic and how they are not. Guess what? If people don't see you working, why do you think they, they think they will have to work? 
There's a culture of hard work in the place where Boaz is leading, where he's shepherding, where he's guiding. And if I can just stay on this a little, and particularly for those of us who are in the non-profit sector, I was having a conversation in the early days with Pastor Femi. Thank God he's not here. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tooting his horn. But one of the things that he said to me that has stuck with me is the fact that I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I don't get to work hard. I was talking with someone recently, and the person was saying, what do you even do here? The person came to my office, and I was like, ah, this place is lounge. You guys are lounging. You are having a nice time. What do you even do? And then I told the person all the things I did. Some of the things I did, not even all. Oh, the person was like, wow, that sounds like a lot. And I'm not trying to say that you should sort of look at me. My point is that those of us, particularly those of us that are in things like civil service, in the non-profit sector, we have to be the kind of people where our position is not an excuse for our laziness. Paul talking about the leaders in the church, one of the things he says should define those kind of people is that they always have to be about the Lord's business. And you can extend that to places where you are even in the non-profit sector and things, other things that have to do with your life. We have to be people who are hard workers. So the last couple of weeks, one of the ways I've been trying to set myself along this task is just downloading different apps that will help. There's an app called OneSec. OneSec, and you can check it out. What it does is that it just frustrates every attempt to open a particular app. And so what I've done is I set it for things like Instagram, things like checking my um, email unnecessarily, things like WhatsApp. And every time I open it, I have to wait for like <sighs> forever before it opens. And what it does for me is that it helps me reset in that moment. Do I really have to open this thing? Am I trying to escape hard work? And maybe some of us should actually download that. Set it for Netflix. Set it for YouTube. You know how you can sort of split your screen and then you are actually, you are working, but you are not really, you know, working. We see at the end of the week, you have watched five seasons of a particular stuff. But it just came out two days ago. But then you're also at work. So when did you actually watch it? There's, a, there's another app called Rise, R-I-Z-E. Now, in fact, I, I just installed it like the last week. And that one has just, like, I'm lazy. That's what that one has just told me. Because what it does basically is that it monitors all the content that you watch. Everything that you do basically during your work hours. And so at the end of the day, it gives you a breakdown. 36% of your time was on Microsoft Word. 35% of your time was on the internet. And then when I checked what I was watching on the internet, did that really, yeah, I was researching, but like, did, was that really? Let's use everything that we can use to be the kind of people who are actually hard workers. Hard work. There's a culture of humility. There's a culture of hard work. But the culture of security. When Ruth leaves and gets back to Naomi in the evening, what she tells Naomi is, oh, this has been such a fantastic day. This is what my boss said, and this is all that has happened at work. And, Naomi, and, and Ruth is saying to Naomi, he even said I should stay with his men so that I can you know, be protected and all that. And Naomi says, ah, please stay there. Stay with his men. Stay with his women. Because in other fields, you may be hurt. 
And I think this is particularly important in the 21st century because a lot of the incidents that we have seen about sexual abuse and all those other things, guess what? Where has it happened? At the workplace. I know somebody who was molested at work and the person couldn't sort of say anything because, well, this person's above me. In other words, there was a premium placed on the person who was above rather than on the entire general health of the company. Our workplaces must become places where people are secure and safe. Where people don't feel like if I tell somebody, if I tell the management about something that has been done to me, they're not going to feel like I'm going to lose my job. But you see, it's not just about sexual abuse, safety from sexual abuse. It's also about safety, even in the kind of words that we speak. I was sharing last year when I was preaching um, from the book of Elijah. Are you guys listening? You're listening. Okay, no, you're listening. I know you're listening. When I was preaching about Elijah from the book of Second Kings, and I said how there was a particular employer when I was um, working, when I was still a practicing lawyer, and the person would employ, and he would pay you very well, but he would tell you, now I own you. And then he would just abuse, verbally abuse and insult his staff. And many of us work in places like that, or maybe some of us even contribute to those kind of structures where actually the culture is to abuse and insult and to sort of just rail against people. Boaz's workplace wasn't like that. It was a place where there was security and safety. It was a culture of hard work, a culture of humility, a culture of security, but it was also a culture of generosity. In verse 14 to 16, when Ruth has come and she has now told the story of how her day was, and Boaz has had an interaction with her, Boaz doesn't just serve her lunch. He tells his men that actually where she was working before, make sure she has access to even more. Boaz was generous. You see, because what Boaz was doing effectively was Boaz was doing more than what was the prevailing market practice. You see, in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy, God had said that you should actually allow widows and allow people who were um, old and, and who didn't have sort of um, ability to make money for themselves to come and take and rip sheaves from your sort of um, farmland. And that's what Ruth was doing. But Boaz says, no, no, actually, I'm going to do beyond what the letter of the law says. I'm going to ensure that she becomes one of us and she has access to even more than she's meant to have. Generosity. I was in, a, um, in my previous workplace. I was part of a committee that had to do something with, you know, with the security infrastructure in, in the company. And so one of the things that we're sort of reviewing was the fact that a lot of security guards in our, in our office were leaving. And it came to our knowledge that the reason why they were leaving was because they weren't being paid well enough. And the reason why they weren't being paid well enough was because we had sort of given out the contract for the management of security to a security company. And so that one would take all the money and they would just sort of give the guys just enough for them to stay in the employment. And so there was a high turnover. People kept leaving. And one of the things I pointed out to, we have to have a meeting with these guys and say, no, you can't just, we're paying you this much. You can't just be paying these people bare minimum. And someone was saying, eh, but that's the market standard. I hate that word, market standard. A Christian cannot be thinking just in terms of market standard. Market standard is good for evaluating where we are, but market standard should not be the standard for doing the things that we are doing. 
You see, it is a, an anti-Christian mindset that starts from a place of what, are, what is everybody else doing and how can I meet that? No, the Christian standard starts from what should I be doing and how can I meet that? And so that even though we may never be able to pay what is the ideal rate, we're always thinking in terms of how can we get there? How can we be generous? Not how can we keep just enough for ourselves? The culture of hard work, a culture of humility, a culture of generosity, a culture of security was a culture of empowerment. And so Ruth has come and made herself known to Boaz. And Boaz says basically, no, 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 you were doing this work unemployed before. You're just gathering scraps. But guess what? I'm going to empower you and make sure that you don't just stay where you are. You're going to become the best possible harvester that you can be. And, Ruth, and Boaz basically employs Ruth. And what we see here is that our organizations, when we are leading to become this kind of flourishing workplace, when we are leading this as worthy superiors, we have to be the kind of people who are always seeking to empower the people under us. Sometimes it may mean sending them for courses. Sometimes it may mean, hey, I think you've done this better. Let's, let's, shift, let's shift your attention away from this previous thing that you were doing before. You suck at this thing, like my employer told me once. You suck at this thing. You're supposed to be a student pastor. You suck at it. Let's move you here to communities. That's how I ended up in community minister. But the point is that a worthy superior always looks at how can I empower this person to be the best possible version of themselves and the trajectory that they can be headed. Boaz looked at Ruth and said, no, no, you are more than just a mere harvester of crop. You are going to be on the path that is ideal. He employs her and sets her on that path. And sometimes the reason why we don't do that, if I can just speak to those of us who are in management or who, who lead, who get the opportunity to make decisions, is that if we do that, then they will leave. Because we've empowered them. Guess what? If we don't do it, they will still leave. And so you have the choice to say, you know, when you were here, we actually empowered you to be the best possible version of yourself, even though you left. Or... While you were here, we kept you down so that you could never be the best possible version of yourself, and so you left. Boaz shows us, actually, that the kind of worthy superior is somebody who is creating a culture of development, a culture where there's a lot of feedback, a culture where there's a lot of appreciation for what people have done, but also a culture of empowerment, of development, like this is where you're meant to be headed, and let's make sure that you actually get there. So the environment Boaz creates is one of hard work, of humility, of generosity, of security, of empowerment. How can we be the kind of people who actually create that? What we see, one of the first things we see in terms of being those kind of people is that throughout the passage, Boaz is the one who does a lot of the talking. When Boaz features in verses 1 to 13, Boaz is basically the one talking throughout. And that doesn't mean that we should be the kind of employers who are always talking throughout. But the point is that we should be the kind of employers who always know what is going on in our organization, who always take an interest in being present, who always take an interest in leading and shaping the culture of our organization in such a way that it goes the direction that God intends it for, for it to go, or it goes the direction in which we have dreamed and are hoping that it should go. Worthy leadership is one that is driven by vision. It's one that is driven in a certain direction. And what we see Boaz doing here is that he's saying, no, 
what this Ruth person, who is she? Eh, he has feedback. Eh, okay, let's take her to lunch. Let's talk with her. Oh, no, Ruth, I've heard this, this, this. Go this certain direction. Boaz is the one who is giving feedback to his, to his staff. He's saying, don't do this to Ruth. Don't do this. Don't do this. And he's shaping the culture of the organization. We have to be the people who are involved in what is going on in our organization. Oftentimes, when I talk with people that live workplaces, part of the reasons why they leave is not even so much because there isn't, there is bad treatment, it's because I don't know where we are headed as a company. I don't know what is in it for us. What are we even trying to make? Is it just about the money? No, no, no. We have to be, as leaders, we have to be the kind of people who are always painting a picture of where our organization can be and the future that is ideal, both for the organization but for the people that work in that organization. And we see all of this exemplified most supremely in the person of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 20, as Jesus is coming to the end of his life, Jesus says that you have heard that those who actually will be lord over people must be people who exercise great authority. But Jesus says it should not be so among you. Whoever must be great must be your servant. And so a fruitful or flourishing or thriving workplace is one that is led by worthy superiors, but is also one that is served by selfless subordinates. Served by selfless subordinates. And so we come to the story of Ruth, and we see in verse, verses 2 and 3 that when Ruth finds out, when Ruth gets involved and she's about to go and harvest, she says to Naomi, they are sitting down at home. Things are difficult. Things are out of shape. He says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. You see, Ruth is somebody who, as a worker or as an individual, she's somebody who always takes initiative. And that's what we see here. And when it comes to our work as people who work under people now, as I'm, I'm talking particularly to those of us who get to serve as employees or work in places where we are serving under people or serving under teams, we must be the kind of people who take initiative. We're not just the kind of people who are sitting and lazing around and, oh, well, what will be will be. If a guy asks me to do this thing, I'll do it. No, Ruth is saying, I won't just allow the status quo to define me. I'll be somebody who seeks to buck that trend and take initiative. And many of the conversations I've heard, or many of the things I've heard with people who are in sort of management position about people who work under them is, there isn't any initiative taken. You pay them, you say this, you define sort of the, the task that you're meant to do, and it almost seems like oftentimes people don't want to do anything outside of what is written. All that does is that it just brings about a culture where people sort of just they just do the bare minimum. But what we see with Ruth is that Ruth is not content with just doing the bare minimum. What Ruth wants to do is that Ruth wants to take initiative and say, this is how our life is, but this isn't how it's meant to be. I'm going to take an initiative to see how it can be better. And so the question for you is, in the spaces where God has called you, what can you do? Not just in terms of what can you do in terms of like your defined position, but what can you do outside of the box? What can you do outside of the things that have been listed down? What can you do in terms of taking initiative? 
And I think this is very, very important because the motivation, Ruth says in verse 2, when we read, is that I want to work so that I may find favor in someone's eyes. And maybe if you're a careful reader, you might be saying, ah, it sounds like eye service, right? That Ruth just wants to work so that she's seen. And then when she's seen, and then when she's promoted, she can just stop working and then she'll go and sit down home. But actually, when you read the rest of the story, you see that, no, that's not the motivation for Ruth. The motivation for Ruth is not just what people will say about her. The motivation for Ruth came out of an identity thing. How do we know? We know that because by the time Boaz gets involved in her story and he's asking, who is this Ruth person in verse 6? In verse 7, that he, he's told she has been working since the morning. And then in verse 17, when he's giving Ruth her promotion, we are told that after everybody has left, she's still in the field working. So for Ruth, it wasn't just about the pay. It wasn't just about people identifying who she was. It was out of an identity thing. And for us as Christians, that's the same way it must be. That if God has created me, if God has orchestrated my life to be this way, if God has gifted me with these skills, I can't just be somebody who lazies about I can't just be somebody who just sits on my behind and does the bare minimum. I have to be somebody who does everything that I can do as God has gifted me with ability. Let it not be that the reason why you don't work well is because you're a Christian. Ah, no, I can't do this. I'm going to fellowship. I can't do this. I have evangelism. I can't do this because I'm a Christian. I don't go to demonic spaces. I don't go to clubs and I don't smoke and all of these things. I don't, meet, I don't do late night meetings. Actually, it should be the other way around. That even though you may not be in all the spaces that people in your industry are at and you may not do all the things they are doing, but by God, nobody will ever be able to say that you are not a hard worker. You're not somebody who takes initiative. Ruth is saying, regardless of sort of the prevailing circumstance, regardless of the fact that we're living in times of the judges, regardless of the fact that things aren't going well and they don't always seem to be the way that I want them to be, I'm going to be somebody who works hard and gives my last breath to this job. Why? Because she recognizes that God has created us to image him by working. But the second thing that we see Ruth doing here is that Ruth starts where she is. And I think that's very, very important for us, right? Because oftentimes you hear people say, oh, no, I want to earn this sort of six-figure salary, or maybe seven figures now because of the inflation. I want to work in this sort of space. And then you have all these job opportunities that are coming. Ah, no, I'm not, no, I'm too big for this, so. Ah, uh, me, I'll be working with a Nigerian oil company. I'm meant for international stuff. And so all these opportunities keep passing you by because you are aiming for what is higher that you don't actually have access to. But what we see Ruth do is that Ruth actually says, no, I'm going to start where I am. And she goes in verse 2 and she goes to the field and she begins to pick. You see, what, what is happening there is that, like I said earlier, in the Old Testament, People were always supposed to, people who were outcasts, people who were refugees like Ruth was, people who were aliens like Ruth was, people who were widows, they were just supposed to have access to the bare minimum that was left. Ruth didn't have this sort of self-esteem, like, no, this is, too, this is too small for me, I'm meant for greater things. No, she starts in that same place where she is. And because she started in that same place where she is, God promoted and gave her something bigger. 
Bible says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says, if you have not been faithful in the small things, who will give you the bigger things? And can I just say to some of us who are working here, where it's like, oh, I've been, no, this, this job is too small. Maybe, maybe it's too small for you. But guess what? That's all you have. That's all you actually have. And God's call to you is to be faithful with what you have, not faithful with what you could potentially have. Isn't that the way it is with us sometimes? I will only love my wife more if she's more. I will only serve my boss more if he's more. I will only care about my colleagues more if he's more. And God is saying, no, 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 actually, it should be right now in this space where you are. Your faithfulness has to be evident because the one who is faithful in small things will be made Lord over greater and bigger things. And Ruth begins where she is. Or you see, the kind of person Ruth is, Ruth is not even content to make an excuse for herself. You see, I don't know about you, but um, if you are going to work in a farm, and you're going to be harvesting and picking grains. Guess what? That's not lounging work. That's hard work. You're not just driving a tractor. You're actually picking with your hands and you're putting it in a basket. And Ruth could have said, this is difficult. This is toxic. I'm going to stay away from it. I'm going to, I can't do this. This is abusive. But no, she goes through with it. And I think many times, I, I think actually there should be a moratorium on the word toxic. I think people should stop, like, just stop using toxic for the next five years. Because often what we call toxic isn't toxic. It's just hard. It's difficult. And friends, life is difficult. Life is hard. You see, there is a difference between the ideal workplace and a difficult workplace, and a toxic workplace. So let me just help us with a few things that help us sort of identify those things. What are some of the differences between an ideal workplace, which I call a sweet workplace, a difficult workplace, and a toxic workplace? Let's have that table up. So in terms of the working conditions, can you see this? In terms of a working condition, an ideal workplace or a seat workplace is excellent. Everything is, is excellent. It's, it's um, all the tools you need for work are provided. But a difficult workplace is suboptimal, right? It's not ideal. Things are a little bit hard there. And the tools that you need for work aren't always provided. And they aren't always provided either because there is a lack of ability to afford it Dollar is 850. We can't get you a Mac. We'll give you Windows um, ASOS with um, what RAM? Terrible RAM. You can't do your work. It's going to be shutting down every now and then. We can't. We just can't afford it. We know you want MacBook. We can't give you MacBook. Make do with the ASOS. So, right, maybe because there's a lack of inability to afford it, but actually, that is not even, it doesn't even exist around. A toxic workplace. The working conditions may or may not, um, 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 the tools that you need for work may or may not be provided, but the working conditions are hard, and oftentimes they are unrealistic. 
I remember when I was practicing as a lawyer, one of the cases we had to deal with was a lady who had gone on maternity leave. And so she had gone on maternity leave. She wasn't um, in the company at the time when she was obviously on maternity leave. She took, I think, one month extra, one or two months extra unpaid. And then she comes back to work and they say, oh no, your target for the year, you still have to meet it all. And that target for the year, actually, because you've been away, we've lost so much. Now we're even going to increase your target for the year. That's a toxic workplace. Guess what? Many of us are not in that circumstance. Many of us are in places where the working conditions are not ideal, where all the tools that we need aren't provided. And it's not, it's not because people are wicked. It's just we can't afford it. Another one is the culture. The culture of an ideal workplace or a sweet workplace is one where, there's generous, where it's generous, where it's open-handed, there's mutual support. But in a difficult workplace, the culture is not carefully reflected on. There is mutual support among staff, right? People sort of like one another. Um, there's mutual respect, but there isn't enough support all the way through. But a toxic workplace is one where oftentimes the culture is well reflected on but it is one where there's a lot of competition, where there's a lot of strife. And in fact, it's not even just that it just exists, it's actually encouraged. I remember someone who was working in a particular law, place, um, law firm, and the person would, you know, he'll be working with his team and, you know, they'll be doing things together. Then you just notice that the person is stalling in bringing things. He's stalling, he's not providing as much information. And so everybody, okay, we can't do this thing. Then they go home for the weekend. And that guy comes to work on Saturday. And he does everything by himself. And then on Monday, he goes and presents. No, in fact, on Saturday, he sends an email at 10.55 p.m. to the boss so that they can see that I've done the work. And then he comes on Monday, and the person is praised and rewarded. And everybody in the team just looks like, oh, we're doing, we're doing this work together. That's a toxic workplace. Where there's a culture where people are encouraged to actually backbite, to strive, to pull down other people, such as to get forward. Another one, the leadership structure in that sort of workplace. In the ideal or sweet workplace, it is well thought on and is managed by competent individuals, and there is a careful balance between the family and the organization. Family in that, oh, there's this sort of communal thing, and even though maybe, for instance, you're not entitled to this thing, but we'll, you're not entitled to this leave, you're not entitled to this sort of um, um, benefit, we'll give you because you've been putting in the work. But there's also a balance between the organization. But a difficult workplace is one where it's not well thought out. Or maybe there is a sort of leadership structure, a structure in place, but it's, not, it's, not, it hasn't, it's no longer fit for purpose. It's ideal for 25 years ago. No longer ideal for now. Inefficient people may be accommodated in that sort of structure because there is a bias to family. So yes, we know this person is not performing. We know this person is not working hard. We know this person is not doing all the things they are doing. But ah, she has five children. If we sack them, if we sack her now, how will they provide for the family, right? When a toxic environment is actually often managed by competent people, in fact, Emphasis is on competence, but there is a huge bias towards the organization. And so what that means is, no, we are, no, 
you are sick. Eh, sorry, you take you take you you take it out. We take it out of your salary if you want. To, if you are not coming to work, there's there's no sort of care for the individual. We're just about this organization and how this organization can move forward. Another one is development pathways. So oftentimes it's visible, it's inspirational, it's aspirational, aspirational even, and other people can sort of go through the ranks. People can get there in the ideal workplace. In the difficult workplace, it's not always visible or clearly spelt out, right? So it may be attained by, a guy just woke up, ah, ah, Lola has been here for 10 years. She can't still be doing the same thing that she's doing now. Let's promote her. Let's give her a new sort of job role. And so the person just gets it by whim of the boss or attainable by only a select few. When a toxic workplace is not visible, it may be visible, it may be spelt out, but it's not attainable except by being ruthless. The last one. What's the motivation in a sweet workplace? It is to meet societal needs by keeping staff happy. So those two things, they're not seeing them as sort of on on opposite ends. We want to actually make profit. We want to grow this organization, but we only know that we can do that by keeping the staff happy. In a difficult workplace, it is overly biased towards keeping staff happy. We want to throw parties, we want to, you know, everybody has to rejoice, everybody has to be happy. We don't necessarily meet all our targets, but that's okay. These people have been working hard, all those kinds of things. In a toxic workplace, it is overly biased towards ensuring that we actually meet our goals and meet our strategies for the year. And we can go on and on and on. But what I'm hoping that you see is actually that many of us, some of us are working in toxic places, but many of us actually aren't working in toxic places. Many of us are just working in difficult places where the conditions aren't ideal, where the people that are leading aren't always leading with the best interest, or maybe they have the best interest, but they always aren't the most skilled set of people. And God's call to us is not always to flee difficult situations. God's call to us is to stay in difficult situations often so that we can become the kind of people that he has designed us to be. Maybe some of you are here, like the, the, the conditions of your work aren't ideal. And you've been, all you've been thinking about is not how can I improve, how can I serve, how can I do the things that I'm called to do, is how can I live? Ruth shows us that actually that shouldn't be the posture of our hearts. Our posture shouldn't be people that seek to just flee difficulty. Our posture should be people that seek to, how can I serve God's purposes? How can I be the kind of person that works hard and does my best in this difficult position while hoping that something better will come up? You see, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is writing to the Romans and he says that suffering produces character and character produces patience. And we know that patience produces hope. Often, the way God builds us up, the way God grows us, the way God equips us for the life that he has called us to live is by staying in the places where he has called us to so that his power is made evident and manifest in our difficulty. Don't just seek to flee difficulty. Seek to be the kind of person who is motivated by God's grace to serve with all the power and strength that you have in the place where God has called you to. A flourishing workplace is possible when it is led by worthy overseers. A flourishing workplace is possible when it is served by selfless subordinates 
But a flourishing workplace is also possible when it is blessed by a generous father. So I started us off with some of the soundtracks that you can sort of think about, about work. But I think there's another soundtrack that um, our most recent um, Grammy Award winner released recently. And I think it captures really the heartbeat of God for our work. And he's singing in this song and he says, common person, and he says, I be common person, but my happiness still be my own. I be common person, he says, but God has blessed, um, but I be common person, but my happiness still be my own. Everybody gets role. No me say your own role, pass my own. Because now God, I put all my faith in. Food for my plates. Because of that, you know, feeds do me, Joe. And even though Bernard Boy thinks that he's singing something that is out of this world, that he has got inspiration from, whatever it is he has got his inspiration from, <laughs> I think what we see in this passage is that actually that is only possible when God blesses your efforts. So yes, we can be the kind of worthy, you know, overseers. We can be the kind of worthy bosses who actually create dynamic culture, a culture of humility, of hard work, of generosity, of security, of empowerment, and we release all these things. Or we can be selfless subordinates who serve by being hardworking, who serve by staying in the place that is difficult sometimes, who serve by going the extra mile and taking initiative. But if God does not bless our efforts, it comes to nothing. Psalm 27 says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor will labor in vain. Your work will be empty and full of nothingness unless God blesses your efforts. And we see that in this passage. What we see in this passage is, first of all, that God sends a harvest. If you remember, Pastor Femi shows us in, in, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 22, that after a while, after things had been difficult, all of a sudden, from where there was famine, from where there was difficulty, from where things were out of shape and out of sorts, God sends a harvest. You see, Boaz had been working all this while. Boaz had been toiling, God knows for how many years, how many years he had set up his company, how many years people had been doing things and working hard for him. But at a particular time, God chooses to bless his efforts by sending a harvest. Oh, friends, unless God sends a harvest, we actually won't see the growth in our work that we want to see. Unless God sends a harvest, all of our five-year plans actually come to nothing if he doesn't bless it. But one other thing that we see here is that Ruth decides that she's going to rise up and take matters into her hands and take initiative and go ahead and work just in case she finds favor. Guess what? She finds favor. In fact, she finds favor so much that we are told in verse 3 that after Ruth had been working, verse 3b says that it turned out. She was just working. She just went out and she was just doing her own thing. But it says in verse 3, it turned out she was working in a field that belonged to Boaz. She didn't know. She didn't know that the field belonged to Boaz. She didn't know that that was her ticket to a better life. She didn't know that was her ticket fulfilling God's potential for her. All she wanted to do was just work hard. And maybe somehow, maybe somehow things will happen. But because God was ordering her steps, because God was directing her path, because God was blessing her labor, God was blessing somebody who had decided to stand up and walk 
and not just sit down on her back and, and sort of moan about her life. God was blessing her work. God turned out. God helped her to work in the field that belongs to Boaz. And we're told in verse 13 that when she comes, verse 13 and verse 16, when she eventually ends up speaking with Boaz, this person who had just been hoping for favor, somehow she says to Boaz, ah, I found favor in your sight. Why? Because God blessed her efforts. Friends, unless God blesses our efforts, unless God opens the door for us, you can be the best hard worker you can be. You can be the most inspiring staff member you can be. Unless God blesses your effort, it turns to nothing. No wonder the psalmist prays in Psalm 90, verse 15 to 17. He says, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. It says in verse 16, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. In verse 17, it says what? May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. And when you are thinking about favor, you're often thinking about, oh, maybe I applied for visa and, you know, I got it. I applied for, I'm waiting for my Canadian PR and I got it, right? When everybody hasn't gotten their own. But no, what the psalmist has in mind says, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us and do what? Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If God sends his favor, he establishes the work of your hands. God's favor is his disposition in Christ Jesus to bless us even when we don't always deserve it. Some of us, you know that part of the reasons why you are in the place where you are in right now is because God has just opened his door of favor to bless you even when you don't deserve it. And many of you know that you have been qualified for things that you've been applying to for many years and you haven't gotten it. Why? Because somehow you haven't gotten favor. But when God sends his favor, what happens? He establishes the work of your hands. Boaz does his thing. He works hard. He leads his organization well. Ruth does her thing. She serves her even when things are difficult. But guess what? God had to send his blessing so that they could potentially become the kind of people that they needed to be. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.